We want to explore this morning that phrase, ballast of assurance. In those sailing ships, ballast would have the idea of the the anchored weight in the middle of the ship to steady it. Um, So we're talking about steadiness, some kind of confidence, assurance. We want to see that in our text this morning. These first century Christians in the book of Acts are called to advance the kingdom of God, the truth, the good news about who Jesus is. But what we see all through the book of Acts is that this endeavor to spread good news is met with constant opposition. The whole book, it seems, is just one story of another about the problems they face, the trouble that's caused by obeying Jesus' command to be a witness. Acts chapter 4, the apostles are arrested for talking in Jesus' name, and they're warned there. But in the very next chapter, as they do it again, they're arrested, and this time they're beaten for their effort at advancing the kingdom. Even that kind of violence seems to uh, evolve into greater threats, and by Acts chapter 7, Stephen, because of his message of the good news, is stoned to death. And it was as if the church had a rather rude awakening to the reality that this opposition was not going away. It was not just going to kind of wither away and, and let this kingdom advance without opposition. Chapter 8 begins with the language that the believers were scattered by persecution. Chapter 12, one of the actual apostles now, James, is killed by Herod, and Peter is imprisoned, and we remember his miraculous escape. Then as the book of Acts kind of shifts its focus to the life and ministry of Paul, what doesn't change is the reality of opposition. Acts chapter 9, the very chapter of his conversion and commission as an apostle, ends with Paul in Damascus and the Jews there plotting to kill him. They hate the fact that there's this testimony of a guy who once persecuted the church and now is living to advance it. So they're going to kill him. And he escapes by being let down in a basket out the window of the wall of the city and makes his getaway. In chapter 13, he's in Antioch of Pisidian. And there he's persecuted and it says the mob drives him out of the city. These are concepts we're not really familiar with in our freedom-based country of America. Chapter 14, Iconium. They attempted to stone him, but he got away. However, at the end of the chapter, in Lystra, he does not get away. And so he is stoned, and the text says, left for dead. We don't know if he was dead or not. God gave him new life or what, but he, he... works his way out from under the pile of stones and presses on. Two chapters later in Philippi, we come across Paul and Silas. They're imprisoned there for their preaching of freedom in Christ. And having been beaten and chained up, they're there in the prison, which God delivers them from miraculously in the earthquake. Chapter 17, a mob attacks 
the apostles in Thessalonica. They move on to Ephesus, and there they cause a great riot. And for two hours, you remember, the people were chanting the name of their God uh, in defiance of this message of Jesus is Lord. Chapter 20, Macedonia, there's a plot against Paul. In chapter 20, he gets an idea, he says, from the Spirit about going to Jerusalem and what he's going to face there, what the future holds. And then in chapter 1, in Jerusalem, the riot breaks out, and we've read about that recently. The Roman guards come rushing out of the fortress Antonia, down the stairs, onto the Temple Mount, grab Paul uh, to, to settle this matter and sort it out later. Last time we considered how Paul then asked to speak to the mob, and the Romans let him do so. Today we pick up the story there. All through the book of Acts, the advance of the kingdom met with opposition to this good news. And yet at every turn, at every story of opposition, we find the Apostle Paul responding with this boldness, his ship steadied by this ballast of assurance so that it can keep on sailing through the storm. He responds with advancing the gospel, with more resolve to be a witness and proclaim Christ. We would say, in the face of opposition, Paul responds consistently with confidence that he has been called to be a witness, and that is what he will do. And what unfolds in the rest of the book of Acts is really this example of a confident witness in the face of opposition. We saw it last week, chapter 22, as Paul speaks to the Jewish mob. Today, we're going to see Paul speaking boldly with confidence to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, as it were. In chapter 24, it will be before Governor Felix. Chapter 25, it will be before the ruler Festus. And then it will get sent up the chain farther and back up to Agrippa in chapter 26. And then he'll be shipped off to Rome. The rest of the book of Acts is literally one man's testimony in all these different contexts. And what we see is a confident witness in the face of opposition. It's really easy to see, and so now it's time to start thinking about what we see in these stories. So I want us to ask the question, how did Paul maintain confidence in the face of opposition? What do we see in our text today, essentially chapter 23, first part of the chapter? What do we see that would help us understand what it means to have confidence. Because we could just as easily say, well, I don't have confidence. And it seems like it's the haves versus the have-nots. But that's not what the text is saying. Are you a person who has confidence? It's saying, here's how you should have confidence. So that's our theme. You can have confidence. You can have a bold, courageous, confident witness in the face of opposition. Whether that opposition is kind of a casual, apathetic Christianity, 
You might face that from school friends or college friends or other Christians you know who think you're maybe a little overzealous. Or it could come from the world. The, the anti-God ideologies. But in either case, opposition can tend to bully us into a rather subdued witness. So how can you have confidence? We're going to read the story and take a look at it and see how Paul maintained this confident witness from chapter 9 all the way through the rest of the book of Acts. In a sense, from his conversion and commission as a witness to the Gentiles to his execution at the hands of Emperor Nero. And that's a good question to ask. How did Paul maintain confidence? But really, I guess what we're asking is, how should we? Having seen what Paul did, and it's recorded for us by the Holy Spirit in Scripture, what we're really asking is, how can we have confidence? So that we're not walking away from that conversation thinking, I, I probably should have engaged more. I probably should have said this, or I probably should have. Instead, like Paul, there's, there's just that settled confidence it doesn't matter if he's talking to his own Jewish brothers. It doesn't matter if he's talking to a ruler or a king or if he's shipped off to the Roman court system. He's ready. And in essence, this is fleshing out what Jesus told his disciples when he walked among them. And he said, don't give thought to what you're going to say when you're hauled before rulers. In other words, just be busy as a fisherman of men. Just be busy as a witness. And it's going to really be the same song in a different context. The same thing you've been telling the people at Lystra and Derby and Antioch, Pisidian, Paul, you're just going to say the same thing to the magistrates and kings and rulers. You're going to tell them Jesus is Lord. And in his lordship, he humbled himself to save sinners so trust Jesus. Bow the knee to Jesus. And that's what Paul's going to talk about. The Son of God who came and lived and died and rose again for salvation that is ours by faith in him. How do you and I maintain confidence in the face of constant opposition? Let me point you to four elements of confidence Confidence in our witness, confidence in our Christian living, our way of life, which will be different from the way of life of unbelievers you know. And they may ask you about it, maybe not in the theological language, what do you believe that causes you to live this way, but they might simply ask why you celebrate that holiday that way, or why you talk that way, or why you, you raise your kids that way. They might not even know what they're fully asking, or what they're going to get is an answer, but you have the opportunity to speak with confidence. How does that happen? Number one, know the world you live in. Know the world you live in. That sounds kind of vague, kind of cultural worldview-ish. That's not a bad thing, but it's, we need to explain it. And I want to do that with the paragraph that kind of introduced our text. Daniel began reading in verse 30. That's kind of where the story picks up. 
But I want you to remember, Paul was, was just standing between Roman guards in chapter 22, addressing the Jewish mob that was beating him, and the Romans rescued him. He asked to speak, and so he did. Look at verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. The mob listened to Paul until he said he was a messenger to the Gentiles. Oh, hot button there. That's their big beef. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So they had let Paul speak, hoping maybe that would make sense of why this crowd is so mad at this guy, and it didn't work. Now they're mad and throwing clothes and dust in the air. So they resort to the age-old tactic of examination by torture. Whip the guy until he tells the truth. It always works for the Romans. They can get to the bottom of this. Either the person's going to break and tell them what's really going on, or the person will die, and now they don't have to worry about it. There's no more issue. It was kind of the Roman way. So examination by flogging is an interesting combination, right? We think examination, let's talk. Well, there was no talk going on here. Uh, they're going to find out what's going on. So when they had stretched him out, verse 25, for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went, we might add, straight to the tribune, to his boss, and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. See, the Romans could whip some non-Roman anytime they wanted. They felt no sense of justice to someone who wasn't a citizen of Rome. Now, Roman law, they, they kind of prided themselves in their system. Equality and justice and rights. A lot of the American way has, has old roots in these attempts at systems of justice. But if you were not a Roman... They could run over you with their horses when they rode through your town. They could do whatever they want. They, they, they felt no pang of conscience for what we would think of as injustice. We know this from historians, uh, that when Jesus said something like, unless a man takes up his cross and follows me, he cannot be my disciple, he was borrowing from the methods of the Romans who would, who would maybe ride through the streets of Jerusalem on a week or two before a big feast day where literally a million Jews would descend on Jerusalem. And they would just ride into the marketplace, gather up a handful of innocent people, and take them away to be executed on the crosses that would line the road to Jerusalem. So that when Jews came to Jerusalem to gather for their feast about their God and deliverance and whatever they thought it was, they were reminded, you believe what you want, but know this, Rome is in charge. So many innocents went to the cross, and when they were led away carrying a crossbeam, everyone knew they weren't coming back. 
They no longer had a say in the matter. And Jesus, borrowing that imagery, says, when you see someone walking away to a cross, there's no turning back. They don't get to say of their own will, you know, I don't think I'm going to do it this way. He said, so it is when you lay down your life in Christ. Your will is done. Someone else determines where you're going. That's how Rome functioned. Beat up whoever they wanted, but if you're a Roman citizen, suddenly you had rights. And Paul raises this concern as the whip is about to be laid across his back. The tribune comes to him and says, tell me, verse 27, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. In other words, he's saying, wow, that's a big deal. I know how much it costs to buy your way into Roman citizenship. And Paul has a great comeback. He basically says, I didn't have to buy it. I was born with it. Now, we don't know Paul's story. His father may have bought into it as a wealthy man, or he may have served Rome in some noble way and was awarded that citizenship. But either way, Paul, in a sense, is born with the silver spoon in his mouth. He has Roman citizenship. He, like a few of the known world, Roman citizens of that day, knew what it was to live in a sense of freedom and justice with rights, which the rest of the world would not taste. So Paul stuns the tribune with his citizenship by birth. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him with the whip withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Kudos for not whipping the guy, but they, they had already crossed a threshold. They had violated his rights by binding him and threatening to whip him when he had not been condemned under Roman law. They knew they were in trouble and had to figure out who this guy is and what's going on. Why is he even in our possession? Why did we think we needed to get to the bottom of this riot outside? And so that's where verse 30 begins. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that's the tribune, the Roman boss here, unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. We would know that as the Sanhedrin, made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, and kind of ruled by the high priest, commanded them to meet, and he brought Paul down and set them before him. In other words, done with riots and mobs and people yelling and screaming, call those fanatical Jews together who were actually the, the dignified ones, and let's talk this out. Of course, we know it doesn't end up that way, but that was the goal. Bring the scholars, bring the rulers together, let them talk with Paul so that the Romans can figure out what's going on here. That's important to know because when Paul raises the resurrection question that sets the Sanhedrin to fighting with each other, part of his motive there is to demonstrate to Rome he had done nothing wrong. He's not an insurrectionist. This has nothing to do with Roman rule. This has everything to do with Jewish politics slash religion. 
And that'll come out even as some of the Pharisees say, he's done nothing wrong. The Romans get the idea this is a Jewish problem. But our story unfolds then, verse 1 of chapter 23, with Paul looking at the council and saying, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And so he begins his defense. Two thoughts as we consider the world that we live in. Number one is really the whole introduction we've looked at. Expect opposition. Whether it's the Jews and the mob, whether it's the Romans, whether it's the Sanhedrin, whether it was the Gentiles in all these other cities or the Judaizers in all those cities, whoever it is, this message of good news of salvation in Jesus is met by all kinds of skepticism, rejection, even opposition and persecution. From that, just learn this lesson that we need not be surprised when our Christian faith is rejected, when it's belittled. Don't take this personally. Don't come unraveled at the seams, thinking, I thought this would be easier, or everyone was just going to believe, because I think it's a great story. I love this rescue story of Jesus coming to rescue his people, and I want others to be rescued. Well, that's great. So keep telling the rescue story, but don't be surprised when people think, that's not for me. We just finished reading Pilgrim's Progress at home, and we're starting on the second book that I never knew was a second book until a few years ago, the story of Pilgrim's wife and children, also taking this pilgrimage of faith. And it's interesting how in both stories, there's, there's all these people standing in the way, belittling them, rejecting that message, saying it's nonsense, and the world's not going to end in judgment, and all that disbelief. Jesus warned his disciples, if the world opposed me, it's going to oppose you. So stop being so surprised that the Christian faith isn't celebrated, widely accepted, every time it's made known. But there's a second element that I think comes out in this opening paragraph here, dealing with the Romans, that in our American context is helpful. I don't know if the point carries the same kind of understanding in other cultures. Yes, we should expect opposition, but to know the world we live in, we should understand we can exercise our rights in service of the gospel. Paul recognized he had rights, and I, I almost find it humorous, or, or perhaps risky, that he waits until they have bound him stretched him out across either um, uh, uh, like a platform or hanging from a stand before they whip him. And as that guy is unfurling the whip, he says, hey, you all think it's right to whip a Roman citizen? And everybody just kind of froze in place like, what is he talking about? One guy runs to the boss and they're going to figure this out. And, and suddenly they're backpedaling like, we did not know you were a Roman citizen. Paul exercised his rights in service of the gospel. Paul understood justice and citizenship and how the Jews were abusing it, how the Romans respected it, and he used all of that to play into his hand. I'll speak for the gospel. 
Now, if he had no opportunity to speak, I'm sure as a Roman citizen, he would have claimed the right just as well. There's no need for him to be beaten. But it reminds us that we do have rights as citizens in the context where God has placed us. And so that part of our citizenship on earth should serve our citizenship in heaven. If we're heavenly-minded people, if we're pilgrims passing through here, then this citizenship actually serves the greater. Whatever rights and freedoms I have, I should be capitalizing on in order to make Christ known. Now, again, I don't know what that means if you live in other nations of the world where they can't appeal to some system of justice. But for us, at least, the understanding is pretty simple. We are free, and encroachments on that freedom can be pushed against through the channels that have been set up in our government system. Know the world we live in, and the world we live in is one, frankly, where we don't give much thought to using the system because the system allows us to do what we want. That begs the question, do we want If our witness isn't hindered by our government, not yet in ways that we really feel, then why aren't we doing it? Because the text is setting the stage like, oh, in that situation, oh, he he was able to witness because the system recognized some kind of justice. For us, we don't think of systems of justice. We, We gather to worship and we go from here as witnesses with complete freedom. So let's know the world we live in and know that we're in a free world that should be allowing us to be very expressive in our witness to Jesus. From the text now in verse, or chapter 23, we should know the world around us, yes, and Paul did. We see it all through Acts. That readies us. That gives us confidence. We're not surprised by opposition. We know what to expect, even in our culture. But there's another element here to having confidence in our witness. It unfolds in verse 1, where Paul says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. Keep your conscience clear. Keep your conscience clear. You see, Paul was confident because he could stand before the mob, He could stand before the Sanhedrin. He could stand before the governors, before Nero. It didn't matter. He was living his life the best he knew how in a godly way. He was speaking what was true. He felt he had a clear conscience. In this context, he's he's addressing Jews. So I think we have to think specifically about how he might offend the Jews. So he's looking back on his recent journey to Jerusalem, and in his mind he's thinking, the Holy Spirit constrained me to come to Jerusalem. And then he's thinking, I submitted to the elders in Jerusalem who had this plan about accommodating the customs of the Jews. So I went along with that. I yielded to them. I accommodated the customs. He's saying, I've done everything I can do. His point is, I didn't bring a Gentile to the temple. They accused him of that in the earlier chapter. He's saying, 
listen, I've done nothing wrong. I have not assaulted the law of Moses. I have not defiled the temple. I have not blatantly violated your favorite customs. I have a conscience that is clean before you and before God. How does that work, to have a clear conscience? Well, our two points are going to help us think it through. The first is just knowing what the conscience is. It's your standard for right and wrong. It's your personal idea of what is right and what is wrong. And that's important to emphasize. It's your internal gauge. Yours might be different than someone else's. Everyone in the room has their own kind of way of how they evaluate what's right and wrong and making those choices. So should we say with Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your guide? Well, let's go with no, all right? Eventually, yes, your conscience does guide, but if we're going to take that statement at face value, we're going to start with no. We're going to start with no. Because the conscience is my personal standard for right and wrong. If my standard is very low, then I can sin with a clear conscience. Paul says as much. He persecuted the church. He tortured people to recant of their faith. And he did it with a clean, clear conscience, he says. Even as a Christian, he would remind us in 1 Corinthians 4, that our own conscience isn't the final word on the matter. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, I'm not really worried about how you judge me or some court would say I'm doing it wrong. I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. But the fact that my conscience is clear doesn't acquit me. I am acquitted when God says, you're doing a good job. You see, the verse I didn't read that came right before his explanation of self-defense or acquittal or God's acquittal was, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And the decision isn't up to you. God's evaluation is what matters. A little Bible research would reveal a number of descriptives for the conscience, a weak conscience, a wounded conscience, a corrupted conscience, an evil conscience, a seared conscience. Over the years, I've enjoyed reading about post-World War II first book that got me started was the army chaplain that was assigned to be the chaplain for the Nazi leaders that were on trial at Nuremberg. There was a file that nobody was willing to receive too eagerly. Your job is to be an encouragement to, to minister truth to the highest ranking Nazi criminals. Well, reading that book and others, Hunting Eichmann, a lot of these stories about tracking down the Nazis, you realize that the first and primary defense that was made by these men was, I was just doing my job. 
And, and it was as if they had a clear conscience. In the face of these atrocities, their, their defense in court and in person was, I was a good citizen. I am a good soldier. I did my duty. And that comes up over and over again, demonstrating to us that with a clear conscience, you can do abhorrent things. So our conscience alone cannot be our guide. How do you get this clear conscience that Paul is speaking about? How can you know right from wrong? Well, that happens secondly, when your conscience is shaped by God's truth about right and wrong. What does God say is good and what does God say is bad? And when I give attention to that, then I can have a conscience that is helpful to me. Then there is a little ring of truth to let your conscience be your guide, but only if your conscience is facing due north like the compass of God's word. Our conscience must be shaped by the word, or if you're a little more technical, you could use the word calibrated by the word. You take your car in to get your tires aligned. Well, their system knows straight, and it figures out if your tires are actually straight or if one's a little off, and we're going to force them straight. It calibrates, sets it to the right standard. That's how you have a conscience that would be clean. You know what God thinks about particular issues, choices to be made. More and more, you must be adopting God's standard of right and wrong as your own. Then your conscience becomes a useful tool. Because in essence, conscience is is like this mechanism. It's like, here's this choice staring before you. Should I lash out at this person or, or should I have a soft answer? And you gotta, you gotta drop it in the machine, the conscience, and the mind starts working through why I should do this, why I should do that. And the key is a conscience calibrated by the word of God starts recalling scripture. And as 2 Corinthians 10 would tell us, you start taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. You're like, I want to lash out. Okay, I need to hold on to that thought. That that is not what Christ would do. That is not the soft answer. And eventually the conscience is this mechanism, this gauge for producing a choice that would be right. And that happens if the machine is tuned to God's way of doing things. Now, in our text, Paul says, I have a good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias historically known as perhaps the worst Jew at the time, let alone the worst high priest ever, a wicked, evil, immoral man, uh, abused his position, uh, partnered with Rome more than with the Jews, just a terrible man. That guy, hearing Paul say he has a good conscience, commands him to be punched in the mouth. And the idea there of striking him is the same language in the chapter before when the mob was beating him. So probably not a a diplomatic slap with a glove, but literally a couple guys pound on him a little bit and then sit him back in his chair to make his defense. 
Paul says to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to that very law, you order me to be struck? He's, he's speaking absolute truth. This man is a whitewashed wall, and that's a picture used by Ezekiel and other prophets. The idea is picture like a brick wall, and a lot of the mortar is crumbled and falling out, and some of the, the bricks have kind of shaled and broken off. And this wall is not steady. But you're selling the place, so what do you do? You whitewash over it, and it hides all those weaknesses, flaws. That's the picture the prophet spoke of. A whitewashed wall, you look good, but underneath it's crumbling, it's, it's decaying. Jesus would call these same Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers, even worse, inside full of dead men's bones. You're hiding death in these garbs of religion. Everything he said is true, and we would argue prophetically. It would only be a few years when this very high priest is killed by the Jews because of his allegiance to Rome. And in one of the revolts against the Roman Empire, he is killed by his own people. God struck him down. Well, this illustration, this story that we're given, this exchange between Paul and the high priest is an illustration of conscience. It's all in this first paragraph. Paul has said, I have this clear conscience, and then this story unfolds, teaching us something about conscience. I'm just not sure which lesson we're supposed to learn, because there's, there's two ways to interpret what's unfolding here in the text. Paul says, I have a clear conscience. He's punched in the face for it by order of the high priest. Paul lashes out at the high priest. Someone else interjects, verse 4, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul says, I did not know, brothers, he was the high priest, for it is written, and he cites a rough quote of Exodus 22, um, in saying, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Let me give you the two possibilities for how this unfolds, two possible interpretations. Knowing that as I give them to you, either one may be right. And we have verse 1, Paul says, I have a clear conscience. Now our interpretation is either going around to the left or around to the right. And it's going to rejoin with some kind of lesson about conscience. And the story picks up and moves on. But there's two ways of looking at this. Both demonstrate the need for the Holy Spirit. Both teach us about conscience. Option number one. This is an example of Paul's conscience calling for a humble confession. He lashes out at the high priest, feels bad about that, and we move on. Option number two, Paul's conscience actually affirms his bold condemnation. Let's explain these. The first one seems probably the simplest at face value reading. Paul's conscience calls for a humble confession. So he's punched in the face, he speaks out, he's rebuked for speaking out against the high priest, and the conclusion interpretively would be he humbly acknowledges his mistake by saying, brothers, I did not know he was the high priest. 
But that begs the question, how did he not know? Remember, Paul may have even sat on the Sanhedrin. If not, he at least ran in this circle. They were the ones that gave him his very orders to go and persecute the church. How did he not know how this worked or who this was? Some have argued that he has bad eyesight, which he does. That's referenced in two other epistles. Maybe a combination of his bad eyesight and the fact that Rome called kind of impromptu meeting. And here Paul makes his defense and somebody off on the side says, punch him in the face. And so Paul just turns and says, you're a whitewashed wall and doesn't even know who said it. That may be the scenario that unfolds. We're not really told, although we are told that he looked intently at the council before he spoke. So there's an explanation for how he didn't know how these proceedings work, who would have the authority to say, punch him in the face, and someone would actually do it. Seems like Paul knew what was going on, but verse 1 says he looked intently at the council, but you can understand how that could happen in, in a raucous kind of a scene. And so maybe Paul, when rebuked for lashing out at the high priest, says, brothers, I didn't know. But that's all he really says. We don't really see an apology, per se, just an acknowledgement. So it, it at least leaves us with an interpretive option, if not a conclusion. So what's the other way of looking at the text, the story? That is, Paul's conscience affirms this bold condemnation. He's punched in the face, he speaks out, he's rebuked, and then Paul does acknowledge the spirit of the law in Exodus 22, but he also acknowledges that this man is completely wicked and is nothing like a high priest. In a sense, this is rhetorical irony, or what we would call sarcasm. How in the world am I supposed to know that's a high priest when he acts nothing like one? What if Paul had a complete understanding of rhetoric and argument between the men who also understood that and only gathered to accomplish logic, reason, and rhetoric, and Paul was using that tool in this context to make it clear, I have done nothing wrong, and everything I have said is true and deserving, and I'm not the bad guy here. He is. That's a possibility. However, we have to hear the sarcasm in the words. And that's nowhere to be found in our tools of interpretation. Uh, How to interpret the Bible generally isn't guided by, well, just read sarcasm into that and it takes on a new meaning. So that's, we're on thin ice in that kind of interpretation. Um, But it, it also does capture a sense of Paul's understanding of the Jewish way and the fight that he was up against. If we go with the first option, this is a humble confession, then we recognize a clear conscience that Paul claimed to have would recognize, I have to acknowledge my mistake. Even in even trying to live the Christian life in front of the world, I'm going to mess up and they're going to see it. And I'm going to have to say, I was wrong. And that may be what we learn from the apostle. At other times, we're going to speak what's true and defenses are going to go up and attacks are going to come. And it's not for us to back away and say, well, I, well, I guess, you know, you, you'll figure it out on your own. 
If, if it works for you, fine. No, it's going to be stand your ground and say, no, this is true. And I, and I can't budge on it. That would be a clear conscience too, fleshing it itself out in a confidence that this is right. In either case, we're left with the Spirit leading us to humbly acknowledge our fault or to stand firmly. And in either case, it comes from a confidence that I must keep my conscience clear if I'm going to be able to look back and say, what I did was right. You wrestle with that. I I cannot steer you to a conclusion. I will acknowledge I resonate with the second option, I think because my mind can go down a sarcastic path. But again, that is not how we interpret the Bible. We can be very grateful that the Bible speaks to us and will help us with our sarcasm uh, at times and our pride so that we will humbly acknowledge our sin. So take that and do some more work on it. We'll need the Spirit's help to know exactly what Paul was doing in that moment. But number three, if you're going to have a confidence in your witness, you need to be wise in your use of the truth. As was read for us, Paul perceived that some of the Sanhedrin were Pharisees and some were Sadducees. They differed on what they believed. Sadducees were incredibly liberal, did not believe in the supernatural, did not believe in resurrection as a possibility. The Pharisees did. And Paul sets off this firestorm by mentioning that he was a Pharisee and he was being condemned, really not truthfully, for bringing a Gentile to the Temple Mount. He didn't do that. Not for breaking Jewish customs. He didn't do that. He actually accommodated them. He was on trial for his understanding of the resurrection in general and the resurrection specifically of Jesus. Read, or read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a lengthy, reasoned explanation of resurrection. I'm sure Paul was heading there in this context if they had led him. But it didn't get that far. But, however, in the rest of his appearances before rulers, you're going to hear in the coming weeks more language of resurrection. Paul's just not making that an issue to watch them fight. He's saying, this really is what this is all about. At at its very core, you don't believe me when I speak of new life in Christ. They begin arguing, Sadducees against Pharisees, even going so far as the Pharisees crying out, we find nothing wrong in this man, underline that, another similarity to the trial of Jesus. And then it just goes downhill from there. The dissension became violent, and the Romans have to intercede once again and take Paul out. What do do we see here? Well, I think it's helpful for us to recognize A couple of strategies. One, if you're going to be wise with the truth, and think think of Jesus' words. Remember that well-known phrase, wise as serpents, harmless as doves? We think, oh, that's good. No idea what that means. (laughs) Wise as serpents. Well, there's something in this text helping us understand that. Number one, aim for the heart of the matter. Paul wisely gets to the heart of the matter. He's not talking about defending himself against the bogus charges. Not the Jewish customs. It's the resurrection. Had some really good conversations this week that could help all of us. Thinking about our witness. 
when we're dealing with unbelievers, with all the messes that will consume them, all the, the sinful characteristics they may have, what are we really going after? Get to the heart of the matter. We can defend truth, and there are kind of reasoned debates where we might get into apologetics. But if you're talking to the individual needy sinner, what is their greatest need? What is their greatest need? Is it to define marriage the way the Bible does? Is that their greatest need? I'm not saying we won't have that conversation. We talked about that a week or so ago on defending what is true. If it's God's truth, we stand for it. But now when you think of engaging people, wise as serpents, is there anything that we can do to get to the heart of the matter and not be lost in issues that will only be corrected when those people yield to the word of God? The natural man doesn't receive the things of the spiritual that, that are of the spirit. So I could argue with them about marriage. I could argue with them about their need not to be a drunkard. I could argue with them about a lot of things, but is it really going to work? So maybe I need to aim for the heart of the matter. What is the heart of our witness? It's good news. It's satisfaction. It's the woman at the well who was thirsty in more ways than just her throat. And so get to the thirst in unbelievers. Get to the heart of the matter, which is hope, satisfaction found only in Christ. Secondly, don't be afraid to aim to unsettle unbelief. Paul does that here. I'm a Pharisee who believes in resurrection. And immediately the confidence of the Sanhedrin disintegrates into angry, screaming children. They thought they had their position and they were confident and they were completely undone. And it's an embarrassing scene. Even the Romans are like, these people have no idea what they're doing. They cannot be trusted to resolve matters. They take Paul out. We'll have to figure this out another way. And those who were confident in their unbelief became unsettled because Paul was aiming for the heart. So aim to unsettle unbelief. Don't be afraid to ask questions that prick the conscience or undermine faulty reasoning, that get to the heart of satisfaction or joy, because that's where those people are truly feeling the thirst. Give your coworker something to think about and phrase it that way. Invite them to think about something you're claiming to be true. Because if it's God's truth, it can take root. You can trust God to make it work in their heads. The point is, truth is on your side. Therefore, you can be confident. Paul could stand before the Sanhedrin. He knew truth was on his side. Let them argue and squabble and their ideas fall apart. Paul doesn't have to worry about that. He's confident. That doesn't end well. We studied that last time. Our witness doesn't always convince, persuade in that moment. But our text closes in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Number four, confidence comes when we rest in God's faithfulness. Confidence doesn't always come 
from your eloquent performance when you were called on to speak. You might think exactly the opposite, that you were a horrible communicator, and you might be right. It may have been a blundering, stuttering mess. Doesn't matter. That was your witness. Oh, maybe it matters, and you can improve a little and think it through and be more ready. But my point is, you're just the witness. God has to pierce the darkness of hearts. So rest in God's faithfulness, and it unfolds in two ways. The text says, the Lord stood by him. Remember God's presence. Maybe, maybe for some of you, you, you really feel like you have the opportunity and you're kind of already engaging that unbeliever. The next time the conversation begins or you invite him to lunch or to go to coffee, remind yourself of this verse, that the Lord stands by his witnesses. Having already told them, don't worry about what you're going to say in those moments when you feel like you're going to get stumped. Default to the good news. Default to Jesus satisfies. Default to they're thirsty and I have something that can satisfy. Don't worry if you don't get all the answers right. Most people that are willing to have that kind of conversation, if you said, man, you raised a good point. I need to think about that. Aren't going aren't to think you're a moron or something. They're going to think you're a person of integrity who's going to go back to what you claim to be your source of truth and try to figure it out. So remember God's presence. The Lord stood by him and remember God's purpose. Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me. And so you must continue to do that. You have testified to the facts about me. That's God's purpose. Oh, he wants you to also be loving your spouse this week. He wants you to also be parenting your kids. He wants you to also be going about your job and making money and being responsible. He has all kinds of roles that he's asked you to fulfill. But which of those doesn't fall under the heading of speak facts about me? So I have given you breath. The psalmist would say, let everything that has breath speak facts about him. Your confidence, your stability must be rooted in God's stability, his presence, his purpose, both of them unchanging. So once you realize how steady God is, then your witness by extension will be a little more steady. We can be confident, we must be confident in our witness, whatever the context, whatever the opposition. Know the world you live in. Be ready this week for whatever opposition, small or large. Keep a clear conscience, meaning read a book like 1 Peter and see what the pilgrim life should look like. A life of holiness, a life of godliness that is above reproach. You're not an inconsistent message. Be wise as serpents as we present the truth and utilize it in our conversations. And all along the way, steady yourself, not in your communication skills, not even in your 
your experience of having done this before. I know how this conversation goes. I've studied apologetics. No, steady yourself in the fact that God is steady. He stands by your side and says, you just tell the facts about me. There really shouldn't be a lot of question about, well, I don't know what to say. You're either acknowledging you don't know the gospel or you're just using an excuse. If you know the good news, Jesus saves, then at least keep saying that. Be like an airplane circling around, pulling the banner, you know, Jesus saves. Might not be the most effective evangelism, but even if you were a broken record, be a broken record to the glory of God and speak simple facts about him. He saves. At least be the blind man. I once was lost, but now I see. Where's the theology? Tell us more, but that's all he had at the moment. You have that. So give those facts. Do it with confidence. By God's grace, he'll bless that witness and move the jury to that decision of faith in him. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this study of the life of Paul. Maybe more flawed than we're giving him credit or blame for. Nonetheless, teaching us that by your spirit, you will lead us through these conversations regarding our witness. And maybe that means even this week. Who knows? Maybe even today. And so make us doers in a hurry of this, your word, so that we don't disappoint you in any way. But we do and will speak the facts about you. Be pleased as we do this, as your saving son, Jesus, is glorified. Amen.